This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the book Letting Go, How I Failed Gay Conversion Therapy and Learned to Love Myself by Aaron Simnowitz. In this book, I take the reader on my journey as I navigate the controversial divide between the evangelical church and homosexuality. At 19 years old, my Christian faith and obedience to Jesus was the most important thing in my life. However, my attraction to other males tested my loyalties, as I believed I only had two choices, either choose Jesus and deny my sexuality, or choose my sexuality and denounce Jesus. In letting go, I hold no punches as I explicitly tell my story with relentless vulnerability, showcasing the emotional pain, anguish, and frustration, yet humorously engaging the reader simultaneously. This book gives readers just one example of a life that was tortured by gay conversion therapy and how it is possible to come out on the other side of self-acceptance. You can pick up this book at Amazon.com right now. Hey, this is December Rose, and I take my coffee the way I take my theology. Strong, hot, and eye-opening. That's why I love the Second Cup with Keith podcast. Hello, and welcome to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles author of the recently completed seven-part Jesus Un book series, which includes a variety of titles dealing with specific subjects as people are going through spiritual deconstruction and reconstruction of their faith, including the recently released Jesus Unarmed, How the Prince of Peace Disarms Our Violence. In today's episode of Second Cup with Keith, I want to talk about a topic that I know has caused myself and many, many other people a whole lot of fear, anxiety, and frustration. And that would be this topic of the end times and the second coming of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up as a young boy, I can remember waking up in the middle of the night and having just complete terror and fear that my parents had been raptured and I was left behind. I remember getting out of bed and walking down the hallway and sticking my ear to their door in the middle of the night, hoping to hear my dad snoring or maybe my mom rolling over in bed anything to give me an indication that they, yes, they were still here, and I wasn't alone in the house, the rapture hadn't occurred, and then, and only then, could I go back to sleep. Now, many of us know, or at least believe we know, the story of what the end times is supposed to look like, right? It goes something like this, that one day, very, very soon, any day now, in fact, an Antichrist is going to appear and fool many people. He's going to make a peace treaty with Israel for three and a half years. And at some point then, he will stop the daily sacrifice in the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, which has not been rebuilt yet, but of course, that has to happen first. And then this Antichrist will set himself up as God in the temple. He'll force everyone to take the mark of the beast upon their their forehead or the back of their hand, this 666 number. Then we'll begin persecuting Christians, there'll be a great tribulation, but then at some point there'll be the sound of a trumpet in the sky, and Jesus will appear with a sword out of his mouth, there'll be a great battle of Armageddon, Jesus will defeat the beast and the Antichrist, and then we'll all be raptured into heaven, and we'll live forever with Jesus in the New Jerusalem. Most of us know that story again, or something like it, but the question is, why? Why do we know this story? Well, we might know the story because we've seen some pretty bad Christian films, maybe like Thief in the Night or maybe Left Behind series. Maybe we read the books. Maybe if you're like me, you went to a Bible study and you read through a book together with some people called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988, and I still have my copy. But however you may have come across this story, it's really everywhere, isn't it? It's in our pulpits. It's just sort of the accepted view of this is just the way the future is going to play out. 
The thing is, no matter how you know that story, I promise you one way you don't know that story is by reading the Bible. Because that story, as I've just laid it out to you, is not in the Bible. It really isn't. The fact is that that story, this end times rapture theory, came to us in 1830, and it was invented by a guy named John Nelson Darby. It goes by many names. Some people call it dispensational theology. Others just call it end times rapture theology. But at any rate, the point is this, that until John Nelson Darby, no Christian ever thought about Bible prophecy that way, the way we think of it today, for 1,830 years previously. That should make us think. (laughs) Well, how did people think about the end times if it's not the way we think about it today? That's what I want to talk about in this episode. One of the reasons, by the way, why John Nelson Darby's End Times Rapture theology has become so popular, especially in America, is because John Nelson Darby, even though he was from England, came over to America, began preaching this message. It found a very receptive audience in America. People were packing, you know, into churches and tents and hearing him speak and tell this version of the end times, which, you know, we all know is very exciting to think that any day now we're about to live out this end times story. But what really pushed it over the edge was when Schofield published his reference Bible and put John Nelson Darby's notes about this end times narrative into the actual Bible. So now anyone who had a copy of the Schofield Reference Bible, anytime they came across any sort of Bible prophecy, they would just scroll down and notice at the bottom of the page these notes that would tell them this story, tell them how to understand these scriptures, which really, originally, again, as we said, for 1,830 years, this is not the way Christians understood these passages. And then, of course, later on, we had seminaries and Bible colleges like Dallas Theological Seminary and Talbot and others that were specifically teaching this dispensational end times rapture theory, then it ends up in, it starts churning out pastors who have been trained under this understanding of Bible prophecy. Now they're filling the pulpits, and now every Sunday they are working it into their sermons. And so this is really how, since 1830, this view of the end times has simply become the only way that American Christians can ever think about the end times. But again, we need to keep in mind that this is a very new teaching. It's as new as Mormonism. This is back the same year that John Nelson Darby created this theory in 1830 is the same year Joseph Smith created Mormonism. So it's very, very recent. So in this episode, I would like to attempt in the short amount of time we have together to summarize Bible prophecy, end time, second coming, all these kinds of things. And really, this 225-page book on the subject that I wrote called Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming, which I recommend, by the way, if you're curious about this topic, to check out that book, Jesus Unexpected. We'll go in much more detail than I can go into here in this podcast. But the clock is ticking, so let's jump ahead. First of all, I guess we probably should start at the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation at the very beginning is about events that Jesus says to John are quote-unquote, about to take place soon and very quickly. Things that Jesus says to John are right at the door. Now, what that means is that the prophecies in the book of Revelation are things that were going to happen quickly and soon and at the door right around the time that John was receiving the revelation. So they are things that happened in his future, but in our past. 
So these prophecies in Revelation, and by the way, what's known as the Olivet Discourse, which we find in Matthew 24, these things were about the end of the age. That's what Jesus says. Not the end of the world. See, we've been taught to understand that phrase, end of the age, as the end of the world. But it's not the end of the world, it's the end of the age. Meaning, these are prophecies that were intended to warn the Jewish people living in the first century about the coming destruction of their temple, the ending of their daily sacrifice, and the elimination of the ongoing Jewish priesthood. All of which, by the way, was fulfilled. It actually did come to pass, and by the way, it came to pass in the same time frame that Jesus said it would in the lifetime of his disciples. So roughly 40 years after Jesus gives these prophecies in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, all of these things did happen when Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, and after a very long siege against the city and against an army of Jewish rebels, they destroyed the temple, brought about the end of the daily sacrifice, the end of the Jewish priesthood, and that is what is known as the end of the age. It's the end of the Jewish age, which was something prophesied all the way back in the book of Daniel. So another reason why many Christians are fooled by Darby's epic end times rapture story is because we misunderstand something called apocalyptic hyperbole. And what do I mean by that? Well, apocalyptic hyperbole is something, by the way, I, I spoke about it in my previous episode talking about the doctrine of hell. In other words, apocalyptic hyperbole is something we see quite often in the Old Testament. It's a poetic, metaphorical, sort of symbolic overstatement of things to warn different nations, different people about some horrible things that are going to happen to them in the real world. But it's not at all about what happens to them after they die, in the case of, let's say, hell. And it's not at all about things that are going to happen far, far into the future and the way the world literally ends, because it's not meant to be taken literally. It's hyperbole, right? So just quickly, some examples. In Isaiah chapter 13, starting in verse 9, Isaiah prophesies this against Babylon. He says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof will not give their light. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not cause her light to shine, and I will punish the world for their evil. So we know that that literally didn't happen, but we do know, yes, bad things did happen to Babylon, and they were attacked by invading armies, and they, they suffered. Ezekiel, when he prophesies against Egypt in Ezekiel chapter 30, and also in verse 32, says this, And when I shall put thee, Pharaoh, out, I will cover the heavens, and I will make the stars dark, and I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give her light. All the bright lights of heaven will, I will make dark over you, and set darkness upon your land. When Amos prophesies against Israel about how the Assyrians are going to destroy them in Amos chapter 8 and verse 9, Amos says this, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Again, this is hyperbole, not literal. Isaiah prophesies against Edom in Isaiah 34, and he says this, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edom and upon the people of my curse to judgment, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. So, what do we notice there? We should notice that these prophets are each pronouncing very real-world judgments and, and warnings that are coming against these different nations, and yet they're using this large, sweeping, cosmic destruction kind of language. Notice how they each promise that the stars are going to go dark and that the heavens will be dissolved and rolled up like a scroll. 
Notice how they foretell this destruction that's going to be marked by the sun and the moon not giving their light. All of that. Well, Jesus speaks exactly the same way. When he, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, answers the question from his disciples about how the temple in Jerusalem, standing right there in front of them, is going to soon be destroyed. He uses the same language. And when he does that, they understand, ah, he's using the same apocalyptic hyperbole. Now, there's a few other examples I'm going to just quickly give to you. In Zephaniah chapter 1, starting at verse 2, it says this, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth. Well, let's notice something here. In context, right there in that verse, Zephaniah is prophesying against Judah prior to the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., Did God destroy the entire planet? No. Did God wipe away everyone from the face of the earth? Well, no. But he says he is, right? So what's going on? Is that, is it a lie? No, it's not a lie. It's apocalyptic hyperbole. It's an overstatement of of what's going to happen. It's the end of the world for them, for those people, as far as they're concerned. But of course, it's not the end of the entire world. It's just, again, their world, quote unquote, in a sense, will come to an end because of the destruction that's coming upon them. But it's not literally the end of the world. We also see an example of this when the prophet Joel prophesies against Judah, and he says this about the armies that will be used to bring the Lord's judgment upon them. This is Joel chapter 2, verse 4. It says, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And once again, this is not a promise to snuff out the sun and the moon or to extinguish all of the stars and all the galaxies in the sky. Of course not. It's a promise to bring a cataclysmic event or doom upon Judah because they are not repenting of their sins. And so if we keep all of this in mind whenever we read the same sort of language being used in the New Testament, whether it's by Jesus or Paul or John in the book of Revelation, we will begin to get a better understanding of what is and what is not being said. So Jesus uses this exact same language to speak about what he says is the end of the age. And when he does so, he's using this apocalyptic hyperbole. And again, as we saw in the previous episode about hell, sometimes when Jesus speaks this way and uses the exact same phrases of apocalyptic hyperbole, it gets misunderstood as, oh, he's talking about what happens to people after they die and they're suffering in eternal flames of torment. Well, No, that isn't what he's saying. Now, in this case of the end times, what John Nelson Darby is doing is taking these the same apocalyptic hyperbole, and he's making it very literal. He wants us to believe that, well, it must be the end of the world because the stars are falling from the sky, right? And the the, the heavens are being rolled up like a scroll. And it's the end of the age, which he understands as the end of the world. But of course, this is not what's really actually happening. So we have to really understand what apocalyptic hyperbole is really all about if we want to understand what's really going on in prophecies, right? So even though this language being used sounds like a scene of the world, to our ears, to the Jews and the early Christians in the first century, they recognized it as exactly what it is, an apocalyptic hyperbole. So when Jesus says all of these things are going to be fulfilled in the lifetime of the disciples, when he says, quote-unquote, before this generation passes away, he was absolutely right. Because all of these things did happen roughly 40 years later in AD 70. If 
Revelation and the Olivet Discourse and the rest of Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled, now what? If we're not following John Nelson Darby's version of this end-time story that I told at the beginning of the episode, if none of that is going to happen in our future because it already happened in the past, and it did, so now what is it? What is it we're waiting for? What's the story going to be about the future? What are we waiting for when in terms of fulfilled Bible prophecy? Well, here's the big shock, and I think this is the best news ever. We're not waiting for anything. One of the problems with Darby's end times, dispensational rapture, this futuristic view of Scripture, of this specifically of these prophecies, is that it puts us in an endless holding pattern. The church since 1830, at least any church that has embraced this teaching, has largely been sitting back, twiddling their thumbs, and waiting for Jesus to come back and fix everything. And for Since 1830, Christians have been expecting that, well, we're living in the end times, we're closer than we've ever been, any day now Jesus is going to come back, and when he does, you better watch out, because if you don't believe what I believe, you're in trouble, you're going to be punished and tortured, and you're going to be condemned, and I'm going to be vindicated. By the way, all of these things are exactly what the Pharisees thought about their Messiah, the first coming of the Messiah. That's why they missed Jesus the first time. They were expecting a Messiah who was going to come and do all the exact same things right? Their their Messiah, what they they expected, was going to come and overthrow the Romans and establish the kingdom of God right there in Jerusalem on earth, and all those things. Now, Jesus did those things spiritually. He did those things metaphorically, and not just for the Jewish people, but for everyone, because for God so loved the world, he came and made the kingdom open and accessible to everyone, everywhere. Poured out his spirit on all flesh at Pentecost and things like that. And so, that's really why they missed Jesus the first time. And I would say it's not that we're missing Jesus' second coming, it's that we've misunderstood what it means to say that Christ is going to come again. This is the part that you might want to read my book after the end of this episode just to really get all the details, because I'm not going to be able to go through everything with you. But I want us to look at what Jesus says about his going away and about his coming back. First of all, in John 14, verse 3, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, many Christians have taken that to mean, oh, this is talking about going to heaven, right? Jesus building a mansion for me in heaven and things like that. In fact, that's literally the word mansion in the King James translation is part of where we get this misunderstanding of what Jesus is talking about. We have assumed, oh, he must be talking about heaven after we die. Well, Let's just keep reading, okay? Let's stay in John 14. Let's go over to verse 20 and see that Jesus continues by saying, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And then in verse 23 he says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, and my Father will love them, and we, Jesus and his Father, we will come to them and make our home in them. So, if we take the entire thing in context, what we understand is what Jesus is saying is that if he goes away, that will be so that he can prepare a place for us to be with him where he is. But then, if we keep reading, he tells us where he is and where he is going to make his home. He tells us in verse 23 of John 14 that his home will be in us. So, 
Where is Jesus right now? Jesus is not up in heaven. No. Jesus says he is abiding in us. And that if we abide in him, he will abide in us. That means Christ right now is here, alive, inside of me and inside of you. And where's the Father? Well, Jesus says he and the Father will come and make their home in us. So the Father is also in you. But wait a minute. Did Jesus go away? He said if he went away, he would prepare a place so we could be together. Yes, he did go away. He gave up his life on the cross. Did he come back? Well, yes, he rose from the dead, right? And did he make a place where you and I could dwell forever with him and with the Father? Yes, he did. And where does he say that place is? He says, he and the Father will make their home in you. So listen, if heaven is the place where God dwells, and if God and Christ dwell in you, then you, my friends, carry heaven around with you 24-7. Christ is as close to you as your own breath and your own heartbeat. Let's also look in Romans chapter 8 and verse 19, because in that passage, Paul says that all of creation is groaning and longing for something to happen in the future. And you know what it is? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, what it's not it's not the return of Christ. No, no, no. Paul says in Romans eight nineteen that all creation is groaning and longing for the appearing of the sons and daughters of God. He says, all creation is groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Well, I think what that's saying is that all creation is groaning and longing for us to wake up to what Jesus says in John 14, that Christ is alive in us that Christ has returned and lives within all of us, every one of us. Here's the shocking thing about the return of Christ, is that there is more of Christ in the world today than there was 2,000 years ago. Seriously, think about it. 2,000 years ago, there was Christ in Jesus. But now, because of what Christ has done, because of his death and resurrection, because of the pouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the Spirit of Christ is now alive in everyone. And so, there is more of Christ in the world today within each of us, than there was 2,000 years ago when the presence of Christ was only in Jesus. And by the way, this is the new covenant promise, the promise of the new covenant, which we affirm every time we drink the cup and eat the bread and share communion with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We are affirming the new covenant promise, right? Well, what is the new covenant promise? Well, Jesus says the new covenant promise, it's by the way spoken in Jeremiah, but it's also repeated by Jesus and it's in the book of Hebrews, is this, the idea that God will make his home among men. That's right. And so that's what Jesus is talking about in John 14. Has God made his home in us among men? Yes, within the hearts of every one of us, Christ and the Father have made their home in us so that everyone will know God directly and personally. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is exactly what it was always all about. And so if we turn to Re Revelation chapter 21, by the way, and look at verse 9 and 10, and we see this whole picture of this bride of Christ, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, well, what is that? Well, we're told right there in the passage that this new Jerusalem, this great city coming down out of heaven to earth, is us. It's the bride of Christ. And so <laughs> the book of Revelation ends with the coming of the bride of Christ, not Christ, but us. It's New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. It's not Jesus coming down from heaven. It's 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And what is the new Jerusalem? Again, it says it right there in Revelation 21, the bride of Christ. And what's the bride of Christ? Us. It's us. We are the coming of Christ. Christ's coming is fulfilled in us. We, the body of Christ, are the fulfillment of the promise and the prophecy. That's why it says, uh, Paul could say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and then say in Ephesians 1, that we, the church, are his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. My friends, do you understand what this means? <laughs> we are now filled with the fullness of Christ. Not a taste, not a little bit of Christ, the entire fullness of of Christ, 100%. So what of Christ is still left to come that hasn't come? If what we're told is that the fullness of Christ already dwells in us, well, there's no more of Christ to come except the Christ that has come in us. In the same way that God was alive in Christ, he is now alive in you and in me. Here's what I hope we can understand, that there is something I call the slow motion second coming of Christ. It's an ongoing, irresistible, inevitable coming of Christ, like a relentless wave of transformation. It's the love of Christ coming to each one of us one at a time. And as I said, since the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago, we have slowly had more and more and more of Christ being born and resurrected in the hearts of people around the world, so that today there is more of Christ in the world than there was 2,000 years ago. This is his plan. What does Paul say? What is the hope of glory? Is it Christ coming in the sky? No, Paul says, this is the hope of glory, Christ in you. Yes. And so we're no longer waiting for anything to happen. We're not waiting for a trumpet blast. We're not waiting to turn on the news and see they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. We're not waiting for some wacko to stand up and proclaim himself to be God and force people to take the mark of the beast. No, no, no. We are not waiting for anything, or we shouldn't be. What we are called to do is to go and to be the incarnation of Christ in our world, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our workplaces. Christ has returned and is continuing to return. His return is ongoing. Christ's return is within you. Christ lives and breathes in you. You are his hands. You are his feet. You and I are what all of creation has been groaning for. Not someday, now, not later, today. Again, whatever you do, please don't wait, because God's plan is to make all things new, and that plan is already in motion. And in fact, without you, there won't be a second coming of Christ. That's right. You and I are essential to fulfilling that prophecy and that promise that Christ will come into the world and make all things new. We are part of that plan. We have a role to play, and it's very essential. And as I said, if you're curious about this topic, I would encourage you to go ahead and pick up my book, Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming. Baxter Kruger wrote the foreword to that. Really proud of that book. I think that book is super helpful, not only in explaining in much more detail John Nelson Darby, how his theories came about, how it spread. We go through in that book each of the Old Testament prophecies and even the New Testament prophecies and how they're misunderstood 
and explain how we should understand them correctly. And then it goes on to talk even more in depth about this slow motion second coming of Christ and how you and I are the fulfillment of God's plan to change the world from the inside out. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Second Cup with Keith. If you're listening on the Ethos Radio app, by the way, there's a place for you to leave a little message. I would love to hear from you to let me know what you think about this episode or any of the other episodes. If you have suggestions for future topics you'd like me to cover, questions you'd like me to answer, let me know about it. I'd love to hear about it. I'm just so grateful that you've listened to Second Cup with Keith. I love spending this time with you, and I look forward to meeting with you again. God bless. Thanks a lot.